involved in the mess to save and love and work because he's a personal and, and relational God. And we know as we read the Bible, God eventually comes down to us and gets involved in the mess of this broken world by becoming one of us, Jesus, the God-man, who comes down and is tempted like we are and gets tired like we do and hungry and he suffers and he experiences rejection and he dies like we will. God is personal and relational. God doesn't love from a distance. That's what happens at the cross with Jesus. That's what's happening here in Genesis 18. God comes down. But see too, by telling Abraham what his plans were for Sodom, God's actually inviting Abraham to participate in his plans for the world. Dale Ralph Davies, he says, these verses don't merely communicate information, but they act as an invitation. It's as if the Lord is saying to Abraham, now please talk to me about this situation. God wants a real relationship with his people to get to even involve us in his plans. And it's not as though he needs us, is it? Uh, He'd do just as well, he'd do better, he'd do fine without us. But God isn't a project manager whose main focus is getting the job done. He's a loving father who wants to be in relationship with us. That means God's plan It actually involves you and me. I really love the way that when I'm off to mow the lawn, uh, our three-year-old Fred, he he has his lawnmower out too. Or when I'm cooking the barbecue, Fred's got his set of of tongs. Uh, The other day he was helping me with the wheelbarrow. That That was a little harder. Whatever my plans are, Fred wants to get amongst it. He wants to be involved. It's obviously a lot easier to get things done when he's not around. But it's not just about getting a job done, is it? It's about growing in relationship. It's about enjoying relationship. That's why God involves Abraham in his plans. Verse 18 says that all nations on earth will be blessed through him. God, in his sovereignty, chooses this ordinary bloke, Abraham, as the person through whom he'll achieve his plan for salvation. It's through Abraham that all nations will be blessed. And that's why he shows his plan to Abraham. Abraham is a real partner in God's work. And for those of us who trust in Jesus, it's similar. That's why your prayers and my prayers actually impact God. God exercises his sovereignty in such a way that he chooses to get things done in and through his people. God's plan actually involves you and me. 
so our prayers actually matter. I reckon we might imagine prayer being a bit like me, uh, uh, like you and me as the, as the little kids coming alongside God and, and mowing the lawn and, and turning the sausages and pushing the wheelbarrow. He doesn't need us, but he wants to involve us. And even though it might feel like we're not really contributing or it can just feel like hard work, God wants us to partner him in his grand plan of salvation because it's not just about getting the job done. It's all about relationship. He invites us in. I reckon that is so wonderful. What an amazing God, the almighty creator God, who would come down and invite us into his grand plan of salvation. Just as I say to Fred, let's get out there and mow the lawn, mates. God invites us into his plans, his purposes. There's a story about an American bloke working in a restaurant in Colorado Uh, And one day, President Bill Clinton, this is a while back, uh, President Bill Clinton visited the restaurant where this bloke worked. And Clinton, he he had a beer with the guy, they sat down, uh, the president just sat quietly listening to this this guy tell his stories, talk about what life uh, is like, uh, living in the area, working in the restaurants. And about a year later, Uh, This is the surprising part. The the president shows up at the restaurant again. And what's even more unbelievable is that President Clinton walked up to this waiter and called him by name. One of the most powerful people in the world remembered a waiter's name a year after having met him. Why would the world's most powerful man show up again and remember someone so ordinary and so insignificant? In some small way, that's what it must be like for God to relate to someone like Abraham and to nobodies like you and me. And it's not that he just remembers our names, but he wants relationship with us. He wants to do life with us. And he involves us in his plans. It's wonderful, isn't it? Anyway, uh, while the two men, they're, they're, they're heading for Sodom, Abraham, he stands alone before the Lord. And in verse 23, he begins to, to pray, you notice, and he prays boldly. He prays even quite surprisingly uh, by challenging God's fairness. Verse 23, will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? In verse 24, it looks as though he's starting to negotiate with the Lord. We read, what if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of 50 righteous people? I reckon it's worth saying, uh, this is not so much Abraham trying to get what he wants, but he pleads on the basis of the Lord's character. You see verse 25? Far be it from you, says Abraham to the Lord, to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you, 
Will not the judge of all the earth do right? That repetition striking, isn't it? Far be it from you. He prays that it's, it's not like God to be unjust, unfair. Abraham challenges God's justice here. That's big. Where God is prepared to destroy a whole city where, where some righteous people might possibly live who don't deserve judgment. He challenges that view of justice that says it's okay for everyone to be, in, to be punished, including the, the few righteous because of the wicked majority. And if you think about it, that's the justice we know. It's the justice that happens at school, in the classroom. Because of the sins of one or two, the whole class suffers. Well, I can't remember a teacher letting the, the whole class off the hook because of a couple of well-behaved children. If it's possible for some righteous to be judged because of the wickedness of others, Abraham asks, and this is interesting, well, why can't the righteousness of a few let the wicked majority off the hook? He's not exactly praying cautiously here, wondering or even asking if it's God's will to spare Sodom. He just prays with an expectation that, may, that God may change his mind. Abraham has a real relationship with the Lord. This prayer, it's a, you notice it's a tapestry of passion and fear, honesty and awe, boldness and humility. You see the mix in verse 27. Now that I've been so bold, he says, as to speak to the Lord, though I am nothing but dust and ashes. And in verse 30, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak. One reason Abraham can pray so confidently and boldly is because he isn't just praying for what he wants. His agenda, no, he prays on the basis of the Lord's character. He pleads his case based on God's justice. And it's helpful to remember that we can pray the same way. In verse 26, God responds to Abraham's prayer. We read, If I have 55 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I'll spare the whole place for their sake. And then the repetition sort of spirals doesn't Abraham's not content with with 50 he keeps negotiating it until he gets down what's the number 10 righteous people and God responds verse 32 for the sake of 10 I will not destroy it the old maths formula for justice it's it's turned upside down for the sake of just a few righteous God will save wicked Sodom and you're thinking about your Bible and you think, well, now there's even a newer maths formula for justice, isn't there? We come to the Lord Jesus in the New Testament and it's not ten righteous people to save a city, but only one righteous person to save the entire world. Romans 5 verse 18 and 19 says this. It might come up on the screen. Uh, 
just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, that's Adam in the beginning, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of one man the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man the many will be made righteous. God's response to Abram's plea to reverse the old maths, it points forward to it. It foreshadows the new maths of grace. We're at the cross, the righteous man the Lord Jesus saves the world. A promise for everyone who trusts in him. In Genesis chapter 19, there are only four righteous ones, if that, in Sodom and Gomorrah. And while it's not enough to save the city, the Lord sends the two men who'd been with Abraham to rescue those four righteous ones. And we're given a glimpse of the depravity of these people in this place. After Lot welcomes the two visitors into his home, that mob gathers outside his house. And verse 4 says that it's all the men from every part of the city. And from verse 5 we see that they want to sexually violate the two visitors. But Lot, has, he's so compromised himself that instead of standing up to the mob, he offers his two daughters instead. The two visitors stand up to the mob and they rescue Lot and his family from the Lord's judgment. It's full on, isn't it? And it's interesting in chapter 19 that the story finishes, it doesn't finish with Lot, but with Abraham in verse 27 to 29. The passage finishes in verse 29 with the backstory, I suppose you'd say. Listen to this, or look in your Bible, verse 29. So when God destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered Abraham. And he brought Lot out of the catastrophe that overthrew the cities where Lot had lived. Why does God save Lot? It's not because of Lot, but because God remembered Abraham. The text is telling us God acts in response to Abram's prayer. Prayer impacts God's will. And the way you pray, the way we pray, will give away who we believe God to be. Do you believe your prayers impact God? Does prayer change anything? Or is it you believe prayer is simply about submitting to God's will because he's already worked it all out so that You might ask God for some things, but with no real expectation that your prayer is ever going to change anything. How could it, you say, if God is sovereign? But God, while he is sovereign, he also reveals himself as personal and and relational. He invites us into real relationship so that he exercises his sovereignty by sharing his plans 
with us like he does with Abraham here and by choosing to be impacted by us just like he does with Abraham. If that's the kind of God we believe in, we must pray boldly and confidently. God chooses to work things out to fulfill his plans in response to our prayers. And that's why we've got to pray, hey. So why don't we do that now? Heavenly Father, we, we want to thank you that you, the mighty creator, that you, the judge of all the earth, the righteous judge, that you are a relational God <laughs> who wants to do life with us. Lord, we thank you so much for the way we see this in the life of Abraham, that you chose an ordinary man, uh, that you would uh, bless all the earth through him. Lord, we thank you that while we're not Abraham of old, that in Christ we're yours that we have relationship with you, that we can enjoy you and, and live for you. And we thank you, Lord, that you reveal your plans to us, that you're in the business of bringing people to faith in Jesus as we wait for his return. Lord God, forgive us for token prayers. Forgive us for praying as though you're not listening, as though you're not even caring and help us, Lord, hold you to your character. Lord, we pray that you would bring more people into the kingdom, that more and more people would be found righteous through the one righteous one, Jesus. We pray for our region that they would be reconciled to you through him. And Lord, as we're tempted to do life on our own, forgive us and help us talk with you, enjoy you, live with you day by day as we wait for Jesus' return. And we pray all these things in his mighty name. Amen.